So our Old Testament reading is uh, Psalm uh, 5, starting at verse 1. Hear now the pure, perfect, infallible word of God. It is without error at any point and perfect in all of its parts. Psalm of David, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare sacrifices for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell within you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and a deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in the righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall in their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for you have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. And that concludes our Old Testament lesson. And um, as you will tell as I'm reading through our New Testament lesson that uh, Paul quotes from David here this morning as we look at this. Romans 3, 9 through 20, the perfect, holy, infallible word of our Lord. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does God good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that concludes the reading of God's holy word. Let's bless that God would, uh, would, would grow us to the preaching of his word, that we would understand his grace and mercy through these difficult texts this morning. God... Um, So often, we forget the good news that you have died for all of our sins, cleansed us of all wickedness and all transgression. We forget so often, Lord. I myself is a pastor who hears the gospel all throughout the week and every Sunday. I forget that you have forgiven all of my sins and given me your righteousness that I may be cleansed before you, that we're all cleansed by trusting in Jesus Christ. Lord, if someone has not trusted in Jesus this morning, I pray that you would convict their hearts to trust in your grace and your mercy for them, Lord Jesus. That you would grant them repentance and eternal life in your son, Jesus Christ, by your grace and by your mercy, Lord. 
I pray that we would understand these texts with a open mind, with a heart of humility, Lord, that when your word is read and, and explained here, that we would receive it with hearts that want to love and serve you. God, as it says in Isaiah, when your word goes forth, it impacts lives, it impacts hearts, Lord. So let us understand these words, though very difficult and painful for some of us to hear, very hard to understand, Lord, help us to have understanding of your truth and your will for our life. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. Oh, yeah, Josh announced King Kids, uh, 7 to 11 downstairs, if, uh, if you want to use that service, if... Um, you feel called to do that. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to bet um, that if you were to ask, I don't know, like, you, uh, say, say you went on a spree, you know, they, they always have videos on YouTube of people like asking people, you know, awkward questions. And it's like, you know, I wonder how they're going to you know, answer on video. But if you were just to go around, you know, ask people, you know, around the mall or wherever, ask them if they're a good person, I'd be willing to bet you that nine out of 10 of those people are going to say, yeah, you know, I'm a pretty good person, right? Um, one of the things I've observed from being a pastor for almost 10 years is that people are willing to do anything to defend themselves. There's just like, I've, I've observed there's this uh, nagging obsession inside all of us to justify ourselves, to vindicate ourselves that we are a good person. No one wants to be a bad guy, right? No one wants to be the bad guy. Even the bad guys themselves. And I want to give you a quote to kind of prove this. And I want to see if you can guess where this quote is from. I'm going to read it here. Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. One that would do nobody any harm. You might think, golly, that sounds like a really good person. Maybe that's from Mother Teresa or something. But you'd be wrong. In that assessment, this is a quote that comes from the most dangerous criminal in the 1930s, Two-Gun Crowley. According to the police commissioner, E.P. Mulroney, he said of this criminal, he will kill at the drop of a feather. He actually did that. Uh, A cop simply asked for his ID, didn't even know it was him. And he shot him instantly. And he says of himself, under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. One that would do nobody any harm. What is even more ironic is as he was being executed, going to the electric chair, these were his famous last words. This is what I get for defending myself. Right, killing people in cold blood. A cop simply asking you for your ID and shooting them is not defending yourself. One thing was for sure, he was very good at defending himself, right? Um, from any accusation. And so this, when you realize this is just not an isolated incident, I want to read you another quote and see where you can guess what this is from. I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them have a good time, and all I get is abuse. Maybe Walt Disney, right? Marilyn Monroe? Nope. Famous crime lord and mobster Al Capone, you know? A lot of mobsters, you know, in the Godfather series, they rationalize it. You know, I'm just taking care of my family, you know. Like, and, you know, bring out the bats for broken kneecaps, right? Um, it's all rationalized. Uh, Louis Lawls, one of the wardens 
of New York's infamous Sing Sing prison for many years, he said this, few criminals in the Sing Sing regard themselves as bad men. They are just as human as you and I, so they rationalize, they explain, they can tell you that they've had, uh, had to crack a safe or be quick on the trigger, trigger finger. Most of them attempt by form of reasoning, fallacious or logical, to justify their antisocial acts even to themselves. Consequently, stoutly maintaining that they should have never been imprisoned at all. I think it's almost like a, a joke, you know, like, you know, criminals saying they're innocent. You're like, oh, sure you are, right? Um, now you might say, well, these are, you know, sociopaths, narcissists. These are not, you know, regular folks like me, Nate. You know, these are like the bad guys, you know. And I don't justify myself like these people do when I do things. Um, but you know what? According to studies, people tend to think that they're better than they are. They think, people think that they're better than the average person. People think that generally that's what people believe, which if you think about it, can't even be true. How can everybody be better than the average person, right? Because either someone's lying or mistaken on something here, right? You can't, not everybody can be better than the average person by definition, even. Like that, you could just see that. This is what the Huffington Post article titled, Most People Think That They're Morally Superior to Everyone Else. A recent study shows that people strongly believe that they are just, virtuous, and uh, uniformly they see others as inferior morally to themselves. And this is what they said from the study. This is Ben Tappan, a, a psychologist in University of London, the study that commented to the Huffington Post, ran the study. The individuals in our sample consistently judge themselves to be superior to the average person. So clearly people believe they are better than the average person, they're better than they are. And what Paul does here is he just takes out one of those, you know, baseball bats, you know, mafia kneecap style. He takes it a sledgehammer to that view, doesn't he? We just read it, you know. He really goes for it. He says, no, effectively diagnosing the entire human race he says is fallen into sin, is spiritually bad. And you know, you're like, wow, Paul, that, you're kind of a rough guy and he's just trying to be harsh or something. He is not doing this to hurt your ego. He is not doing this just like to put down others and make you feel bad about yourself, you know. Paul is showing us the problem so that we can seek a solution, so we can seek a solution to the problem, we can seek a treatment in and help from God in Christ. And it is when we are finally able to admit that we have a problem. It's that point when we can finally seek a solution to that problem and find growth and redemption in Jesus Christ. We see when our ability to justify ourselves and to you know, lawyer up in our, inside of us, when that's taken away, we're, we're done being self-righteous and justifying ourselves, then we can be freely justified by Jesus, not us, by his perfect life, not ours, then we don't have to be defensive. And there's almost a free, a freeing feeling about not having to be defensive and you know, pursuing the exhaustive, exhausting idea of constantly trying to defend yourself. And so in our relationship with God, when we understand that we are bad, when we realize that when we, when we put down our guard with God, we can be honest with God. We can grow in our relationship with God because after all, any healthy relationship is not based on lies and cover-ups and defense, but honesty and transparency. So although this truth, when we read it, hurts as we go through it verse by verse, it is, as Jesus said, the truth that sets you free. 
Yes. So let's look at what God's word has for us today in Romans 3, 19 through 18. So what then? Are the Jews better off? Any better off? The idea here is that the Jews thought they had, they were, they, they were necessarily in because of their race and their background. They had an advantage, but still everybody is sinful. So they're not free off this. No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles are under sin. So if you read the psalm, it's kind of like us versus them, kind of like, you know, the Jewish people are good and these Gentiles are bad. But here he's saying, no, everybody is under sin. Everybody's in trouble. There's no one that gets kind of an escape hatch on this, a free lunch on this. It's happening, right? This is everybody's under sin. As it is written, and the perfect tense here is, is used, meaning that it is it was stand as written. It was in the past, but it's something that has continued relevance for us today as he's writing to Christians. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. It doesn't mean no one understands like math equations. Well, actually, a lot of people don't understand math equations. They're pretty tough. But it's not saying like no one understands anything. It's talking about, as we'll see, spiritual understanding. No one seeks for God. We'll look at that more, what that means, because there are people who seek after God. What's, what's Paul talking about when he says no one seeks for God? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless in terms of their actions and their behavior. No one does good, not even one. Not one person does good in this category here that Paul is addressing. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Kind of sounds like death metal lyrics right there. Their, their throat is an open grave. That's pretty intense, right? Like what, a, what an image that, they're, that, they're, that their communication is so foul that it's like they just you know, scream out death and sin by the way that they speak and their tongues deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. For anybody who's confused, that's a snake. An asp is a snake like a viper. So ancient word there. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So this is talking about the, 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 the mouth here that he's focused on. Now he's going to get to the more, the more actions uh, beyond just verbalization. Their feet are, are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, meaning that they're causing all sorts of chaos. They're, they're violent. Um, and it says here... And the way of peace they have not known. If you don't have peace with God, you're going to have trouble having peace with other people. That's the idea here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That the opposite of the person in the Proverbs, you know, it says the beginning, uh, uh, the, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. These, they have no fear of God. They have no concern. Even any reverential fear towards God. They don't care about God. And so that explains in part why they have this horrendous behavior. Uh, that's that's uh, described here. So I, I have to admit, this text is very difficult. As I said before, a, a lot of Christians and non-Christians have struggled with this, not just because the text is kind of like a Debbie Downer, like, wah, wah, you know, it's like, wow, geez, definitely not going to hear that on Oprah, right? Kind of a little heavy, you know? You're like, wow, I was feeling great, and then I read Romans 3. Not feeling great right now, kind of thing, right? You know, it's a little harsh, you might think, you know? But it's not just that. But people feel like this doesn't line up with their experience. And just to give you an example, I've heard Christians say, okay, what is, what is Paul talking about when he says no one seeks God? 
I mean, is that like a Bible contradiction? Because Isaiah 55, 6 says, you know, seek the Lord while he may be found, right? Like, so people, see, I mean, I seek, you might be thinking, I seek God. So what does Paul mean to say when he says, hey, you know, no one seeks after God? Well, what he's actually talking about is people prior to coming to Christ, people who God has not drawn yet to come to Jesus. He's talking about people who do not have a relationship with God. These are, would be titled as unbelievers. This is, which we all were at one point in an unbelieving state, and God changed our hearts. And so he's talking about those people before they knew Christ to show that, yeah, in your past, you have nothing to stand on. You have nothing, you can't defend any of it. And the Bible teaches that without God's grace, without his mercy, the church has taught for over 2,000 years, without God's mercy and grace and initiation, no one's going to see God. It takes God to do something first to us in order for us to seek him. He has to do something first to us radically in our hearts for us to come to Jesus. And then you see Jesus teaching this in John 6, He says, no one can come to me so you're not going to seek Jesus. You're not going to come to Jesus unless something has to happen. So the first part, that's like Romans 3. You can't come unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another reference, just quickly, is John 15.5, one we're well you know, aware of, but Jesus, I'm the, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... It is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that includes seeking and coming to Jesus. We need Jesus to even come to Jesus. That's what the, the idea is here. And so what Paul is describing here in Romans 3 is those individuals whom God has not yet drawn to, to Christ hasn't drawn them, so they will not seek because God has not begun the, the, the drawing process yet. Now, another thing um, that I've heard about this passage, and this is from both believers and unbelievers, people have struggled with this, is that no one does good, not even one. Like, wow. Um, and people think, Nate, that's kind of out there, isn't it? Like, I'm, I have unbelieving non-Christian friends, and they are so kind and generous. They, you know, help out um, homeless. They give to the needy. They're loving towards others. They're forgiving. Um, and, you know, just, I know a friend, you know, I, I, I know people that are like this, that are just so kind. They would just give the shirt off their back to you. I mean, the nicest people. And so, you know, they love their family and friends. They're, they're, they're in a, you know, committed relationship. So then how can Paul say, no one does good, not even one, referring to unbelievers? Like, that, is, that doesn't seem to line up with anybody's experience. Um, well, Paul is, not, is, is talking about a, a certain type of goodness, being good specifically before God, or this is commonly referred to as spiritual goodness, goodness that God would accept. And it needs to be made clear that Paul is not saying here that non-Christians don't do good, or they don't help out with the good of society, they certainly can. They really do. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed, I've seen in some Christian households growing up, is that people make, like, some people, some, some believers will make non-Christians into, like, supervillains, or, like, the worst people ever. 
You know, and so, you know, when their kids leave the house, they have unbelieving friends and they're like, I've been told that the, you know, unbelievers are so bad and so horrible. And they're like, they're terrific people. A lot of them are so wonderful and they're successful. They're caring to their families. And so, you know, you don't want to set up a kind of like an exaggeration, you know, in our heads. And then when you have, you know, non-Christian friends, you see that they're really Many of them can be lovely, funny, and great to be around and make positive impacts in society. Um, so we don't want to build up a fake caricature only to have that thing crack when the Bible, the Bible does not teach that. To be clear on that. And in fact, Paul speaks positively in a good way of non-Christians later on in Romans 13, 2 through 4. I want to read this so we can understand just how positive this is. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, appointed by God. And those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct. They're, they're for good conduct. They're for the good, but to bad. So not supervillains here. We'll, we'll see why that, this is connected to unbelievers. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? They're in authority and they're appointed by God himself. Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is not God's servant for your good. He's the servant of God. That's what it says. Servant for, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Referring to the death penalty there. They have certain rights that are appointed. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So at the time Paul was writing this, every single person in power, in whether you're talking about Israel, um, you're talking about anything, all, everybody in power were unbelievers. At this time when Paul was penning this, believe it or not, Nero was in power as a Roman emperor, and he was a really bad guy. You may not like any of the presidents of the United States, but let me tell you, they're doing a lot better than Nero. <laughs> okay? So just FYI, if you're worried about that, they, you know, Roman emperors were pretty, pretty bad people. And Nero was not only bad, but beyond incompetent. Um, and so, yeah, it says that they are servants of God for good, and they're not a terror to, 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 to uh, good conduct, but to bad. And so Paul sees unbelievers here as people who can do good in society and even be used by God. I think people miss that when they forget the historical context is when Paul was penning this. So your friends and family um, who are you know, you know, non-believers, they're being used by God in many ways, and they can be a tremendous blessing to society. But you see, the issue is that people still struggle, and I, I understand why people struggle. You're like, Nate, it still says like straight up, like you can't get around this. No one does good, not even one. That's pretty heavy-handed, right? And people are still frustrated that Paul can say this of non-Christians, you know, can't you, know, can't you just do any goodness that God would accept? And um, my, my grandfather, who was um, an existentialist philosopher, he was into Jean-Paul Sartre, and he would read all these books, he, he would have great discussions with me. Um, they say I'm the most like him. Um, I take after my grandfather and was profoundly sad when he passed. I loved him very much. And so he would always, you know, probe me and ask me philosophical questions and everything. And, you know, he found out I held this view, I think through talking to my parents, or I don't remember how, but he uh, found out I held this view that, uh, you know, that people who do not, not know Jesus cannot do any spiritual good before God, and that they don't have any good works that God would accept. 
And so he's like, how can you hold this, this view? This view is obviously, Nate, this view is so ridiculous and intellectually absurd. Nate, how can you, you know, actually entertain this view? He was kind of confused. I said, well, you know, Grandpa, is God, is God on Christianity, just on the Christian viewpoint, is God the greatest good? He's like, yeah, that's what Christians would say. And I'm like, okay, so that's on the Christian viewpoint. God is the greatest good. And so you don't, he was agnostic. He's like, you know, I don't believe in God. And like, yeah, you don't believe in God. So because you don't believe in God, nothing you do is for the greatest good. Because on my view, I think God is the greatest good. And so then how can, your, how can he accept your actions as good when you're doing all of them without reference to the greatest good, who is God himself? And this is especially true when you consider that God is perfect and his standard for goodness is perfection. It's not imperfection. A perfect being has a perfect standard. So why would God accept an action that is not done for him, that is done even in some cases in rejection for him, in the rejection of the goodest, greatest good? Why would God consider that action good? Um, and so, you know, he kind of sat there and thought about it and reflected, and we just kind of changed the topic, you know. Um, so I think he accepted my answer. Um, I, I, I hope that he trusted Christ before he died. I talked to him before he died. And so I'm hoping I get to see him in heaven and get to see if he, he was convinced by that answer or not. Um, and, you know, that, that makes sense when you think about it. So suppose a son was angry at his father and, like, thought his, you know, father did a bad job in life. And so everything the son was doing was to outdo his father and to kind of say, look what I did, Dad. You know, I'm better than you. If a son had that heart, even though he was feeding the homeless and being nice to everybody, but he was doing everything for, for his heart intention just to defy his father, to show his dad that he was better than him, I don't think we would say that's profoundly honoring to your father, is it? There's a, there's a negative heart intention on there, and God knows the heart, and so because he knows our heart and knows that we're not doing actions in our heart, people who reject Christ reject God, that he cannot accept those deeds because he is the greatest good. And so, yeah, I think when you think about it, it makes sense, but Romans 3 is still a pretty tough verse. It's very shocking, um, as we saw from the very beginning. And, um, you know, it's shocking, I think, because we as people in particular, we love to compare ourselves to others. Um, and what I find interesting is that we're, like, feeling bad about ourselves, like, oftentimes. Like, I'm feeling bad about myself. We, we don't pick somebody who is morally superior or who we perceive as morally superior to, to like reflect upon. We like arbitrarily pick someone way lower than us. And we're like, I'm not as bad as that guy. I guess I'm doing pretty good. You know, it's just some random person you like pops up in your head. Don't worry. When I think about it, I don't think of anybody from the church. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, so we think of somebody just randomly who's like, you know, maybe not good at all. Um, and someone who is like maybe acting very lousy in life. And then we're like, yeah, I'm, you know, when compared to that person, yeah, I'm really, uh, really terrific. I'm really so good. And so when we do this, we can feel righteous. That lawyer comes out in our hearts and we can justify ourselves so we can regularly protect ourselves and our ego by comparing, you know, not how we're doing compared to the highest standard, but we pick something very low, right? And people will do this to avoid being morally exposed for what they do and what they, uh, what they have done. And so when you, when you are exposed, though, what happens, because we've, been, we've kind of been protecting ourselves in our heart, we're like comparing ourselves to some low standard. When we're exposed to a high standard, it's kind of like shocking. 
It's overwhelming. The feeling, there's, there comes, you know, sometimes people struggle with immense shame and guilt. And um, I actually knew somebody who was so good at defending themselves. Actually, I didn't know them. That's incorrect. I knew somebody who knew them. And so I, I, I have a friend who um, was talking to somebody um, at the gym. And um, basically, they were kind of talking about Jesus. And like, how could you believe, you know, that people do bad things or are bad? And my, my friend's like, well, you know, and this, I've, I've said this a lot from the pulpit, but, you know, you're kind of imagine what would happen if we just took, like, your thoughts and your mental images for one day and we played them for everybody here. You'd, like, run out of the church, all your friends and family. You wouldn't want them to see what you were thinking just for one day, let alone two or three. And, um, and you know, my, my friend brought this up to, to them, and they were so in the mode of defending themselves they were so locked into saying that they were not bad that what they did was like, well, so, you know, would you be embarrassed like if your friends and family knew what you're thinking? Like, I don't know, I don't want to, yeah, no. You know, kind of like waving your hand, like, I don't want to talk about this. And aren't we so good at that? I mean, when we're just desperate, we'll do anything to defend our ego and who we are so we don't completely fall apart. Um, and in, when we're confronted with God's standard of perfection, we're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And when people in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament, when they're confronted with who God is and his holiness, his infinite holiness and perfection, when they finally realize who God is, they just fall apart. Isaiah falls apart. He says, woe is me. And so you see this all throughout the Bible. When people are confronted with the purity, the infinite purity of God, a God so pure, as the book of Habakkuk says, he can't even look upon sin, when they're confronted with that, and they're not comparing themselves to their neighbor who's kind of, you know, gets drunk and is mean to his wife, when they're comparing themselves to the infinite standard of God, they just fall apart. They just collapse. And you see this lawyer destroyed in the book of uh, Luke. You see the lawyer instead of Peter, I should say. You see it just collapse and destroy. When he finds out that the miracle that Jesus did implies that Jesus is God, that Jesus has control over animals, the fish, and the sea, when he realizes that Jesus is God of the universe, when he is the Lord God Almighty, he just falls apart. He just collapses at the, just the, the, the infinite holiness and perfection of God. He just can't take it. And you see this in Luke Five through six through nine. He's not comparing himself to those dirty Gentiles anymore, those you know tax collectors that he can make himself feel like a righteous Jew. No, when he confronts himself to the holy, perfect standard of God, it's just woe is me, or just complete uh, moral and emotional collapse in his soul. You see this in Luke 5, 6 through 9. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. That's how much Jesus has control. He's able to bring all the fish. And they were fishing all night. And he's a professional fisherman. And Jesus, snap of his fingers, fisher in the net. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help him. And they came and filled both boats. And so they began to sink. So much fish, they couldn't find anything all night. And now the boats are sinking because there's so much fish just by Jesus' miracle. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, because he knows he's God, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So when he sees that it's God, he just falls apart. And when we face God someday, we will be morally exposed like that, and we will have no defense of our actions 
before a holy and pure God. And so Paul ends this point, that point, he drives it home in Romans 3, 19 through 20. And we're going to see this not just like to make us feel bad or beat us up. We'll see how it goes. Now we know that whatever the law says, the law of God, the moral law of God, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so this law of God, what was captured in the Mosaic Covenant, this law, they, they see that the Jews were held to this law and they couldn't keep it. And so the whole world is, you know, laid naked, exposed before God. For by works of the law, and in Greek, that suggests from recent scholarship, this is actually works that you try to earn and achieve salvation. Um, no human being will be justified in his sight. So this is a law court. Uh, Dikao is used as like a Greek word as before the law court of God. In his sight, you, you are not declared righteous by works of the law, by trying, doing, and achieving. You are not justified in his sight by those things. You are not saved by good works since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Every time someone, because I'm a particularly sinful person, <laughs> um, or I guess, I don't know, maybe it's the Irish hill country in me. I'm not sure which it is, but it's one of those things. Whenever someone tells me to do something, I want to do the opposite. You know, I just, that's how I am wired. Um, uh, you guys might see my mischievous sense of humor come out from time to time, I'm sure. Uh, but that's, that's how we are as people, though, is that when someone tells us to do something, we don't want to do it. Don't tell me what to do. I want to... I'm going to do what I want, you know? Um, and so the law telling someone what to do, the moral kind of weight of that makes people do the opposite at times. And so the law doesn't, we think the law just hearing it helps us, but no, it makes it worse sometimes. And so we have no argument. We have no plea. We have no defense on that final day of judgment. The lawyer inside of us is completely wrecked and destroyed. And, and I have to admit, it's hard to realize this. It is hard to face this. And... Um, so many people prefer to live in such a way that they just defend themselves at all costs, no matter what they've, they've done. But you see, when you finally stop defending yourself, then you're free from having to do that endlessly, and you're finally seeking a solution to your problem. You're finally actually free. When you admit that you have a problem, when you admit that you have an issue, when you admit that there is things that you're just, you've done that are wrong, and you, you stop just defending and lawyering up in your heart, trying to be a defense attorney, whatever it is, you're finally free. It's exhausting to do it, and you're free to finally grow as a person. Um, I want to say it's one of the best movies ever made, but that's in part because my hero, Denzel Washington, is in it. I have a little man crush on him. I'm just kidding. Um, it, I love Denzel Washington. Um, and, you know, it, he, may, he makes such great movies. And one of the best movies he's ever made is Flight. Like, if you watch this movie, if you struggle with lying, you will not struggle anymore. Like, I wanted to be honest for, like, the rest of my life and never even come close to lying after watching this movie. It is like... An amazing movie. It isn't for children, that being said. So don't like, you know, take your, your five-year-old and say, Pastor Nate said this was great, you know, and then it's like, yeah, I can't believe you, you know, don't do that. Um, you know, watch it with your, with your um, yeah, adult children or, or, or wife um, or whatever, friends. Um, so in this movie, it's amazing. So Denzel Washington is a complete, he's a pilot. He's a complete alcoholic. I mean, guy is drunk constantly, constantly drunk. 
Except when he's sleeping, he can't drink then, obviously. But, you know, he's drunk whenever he's awake, that kind of thing. And he's ruined all of his relationships. They're all wrecked and destroyed because he can't admit that he has a drinking problem. He can't admit that he's an alcoholic. And the only relationship he has is with a flight attendant. And that's all he has. He's severed everything else in his life. And um, what happens is that, you know, he, dri- he uh, flies drunk. He drives drunk. He does everything drunk. He's drunk constantly as much as he is awake. And so um, while he is, you know, drunk, he's flying an airplane. You know, he's an airplane pilot and all these people in there. And there's a malfunction in the, in, the, the, uh, in the aircraft. And so he does an amazing landing and he's good. He's a great pilot. And because he's constantly drunk, he does actually a great job in flying and landing the plane and saving, you know, hundreds of lives. And so, um, but they found the issue is that, that, you know, the flight association found vodka bottles in the, in the pilot's trash can. And so the whole movie is him trying to defend himself that he did a good job landing the plane. They show that, but he is still drunk while piloting the plane. And so the whole movie is filled with him lying, defending himself, lying some more and getting drunk and drunk and drunk, you know, constantly, you know, popping, you know, vodka bottles in his mouth. And so, they, you know, he's regarded as, a, as saving these people, but he was drunk while doing it. So it's kind of like this huge dilemma that he's in. And uh, they have a public hearing to try to vindicate him. He's going to lie the whole time. They've taught him to lie. He's drunk during the hearing. Because he's always drunk, right? Um, and so during the hearing, he's, he's been lying and defending himself the whole time. And finally, they're blaming the vodka bottles in the, in the flight uh, garbage can on that one person who died, who he had a good relationship with from the beginning. She ended up dying, one of the few that ended up dying on the flight. And he's so, you know, sad about her death and honoring her memory. He can't lie anymore at that point because he's like, I have to throw my dead friend, the only friend I had, under the bus in order to continue lying. And so it's the most emotional scene in any movie. He breaks down in just tears and crying. He's like, yeah, I was drunk. I, I'm the one that drank the vodka bottles. It wasn't her. I guess I'm drunk right now. I was drunk the night, the, the night before the flight. During the flight, I'm always drunk because I'm an alcoholic. And so finally at the end, he's in prison because, you know, you can't drive, I mean, fly a plane drunk, right? And not go to jail for that. You're probably going to jail if you drive hundreds of people on a plane drunk. So he's in jail and he's giving his, sharing his story to his inmates. And he finally is able to have a relationship with his son. And he says, I'm in prison right now, but this is the most free I've ever been. Because he's admitted the problem, he's gotten help for the problem, and you see, admitting the truth is just so very hard. It's the toughest thing ever. And so people, the people that are stuck in greatest addictions and sins, repeated sins they're struggling with, and they don't want to admit they have a problem, those are the people that are the most trapped. Those are the people that are most in bondage are people who love to defend themselves and who are self-righteous. They have the best inner defense system I've ever seen, the greatest job at rationalizing things. They're either good at minimizing the problem or hiding the problem in order to keep and save face that they're a good person. And at the same time, it's sad to say that those are the most blindest and horrible people to be around. They're always righteous and good. They can never do anything wrong. You can never correct them. It's, they just always think they're the greatest. And if you think you are perfect and good, and what ends up happening is if you think you've already arrived, you can't improve any. Improvement assumes that you have flaws. 
Improvement assumes that you're sinful. And so the only way you're really going to grow is if you recognize that you have flaws and sins and problems right now. And so what happens is this self-righteousness, far from producing growth in our lives, produces looking down on others and it stunts our growth. Because you know what? Everybody else hasn't arrived like a self-righteous person. And so this is why Paul, he asked, because they were very self-righteous Jewish people in the first century. This is why he has to kind of pull the rug under our feet and kind of says, yeah, guess what? Yeah, everybody has a problem. And the only solution to our problems is faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel message doesn't even make sense unless you get the bad news first. You know, you'll say, oh, you know, Jesus died for my sins. Well, I don't think I'm sinful, so I don't need someone to die for my, my sins, right? Or someone is self-righteous and thinks they're good. They're not going to need Christ's righteousness and goodness outside of themselves. They're not going to reach out in faith and trust in Jesus and receive the righteousness of Christ because they already think they're righteous. And so, yeah, people, people that think they have no sin are not going to seek a solution to sin in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you don't think you're currently struggling with sin, I mean, Paul says he struggles with sin currently. John says that all the authors of the New Testament say that they're currently struggling with sin. Then if you think that you're good right now and you've arrived, then you're not going to pray to God for forgiveness, are you? You're not going to call and pray to God for help as you're struggling with sin. You're not going to go to God because you know what? You don't need any help. You got to figure it out. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're a good person. You don't need any help. You got this all figured out. I'm an independent American. I've, I'm, you know, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And God, people like me. I'm so amazing. So I'm not going to have to pray or ask God for help. And there are so many people I've talked to who actually believe and they think that if you think that you're bad, that that keeps you away from, from God. But if you think that you're righteous and good, then that, that actually helps you get to God. But that's not true. Yeah, I mean, if you actually, like Paul does, admit that you're the chief of sinners and that you are a sinner, then what's going to happen if you have that mentality is you're going to pray to God every day. You're going to ask him for forgiveness every day. You're going to read your Bible. You're going to look for help. But if you think you're perfect, if you think you got this all figured out, you're not going to go to God for help because you don't need any. And so God's office is not at the top of a ladder that you have to climb up. God's office is at the end of your rope. That is when your relationship with Christ truly develops is at the end of your rope. When you've got nothing else in this world to hang on except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when you realize you need help all the time, then you go to God all the time. And when you go to God all the time, you grow in your relationship with God. And when you grow in your relationship with God, guess what? You grow as a person. And so Paul is bringing this sledgehammer to the ladder of climbing up, trying to be good and all that stuff. And he wrecks it, says we're all train wrecks, so that we can radically depend on Jesus you know, all the time, constantly. And so it's not just something for like, oh, this is only for unbelievers. This is something for believers. Um, Paul's not writing to atheists or to agnostics, people that don't believe in God. He's writing to Christians to remind them, you are sinful, you are presently sinful, and you need the grace of Jesus Christ constantly. We are sinful every day, and we need a Savior every day. So you read your Bible, you pray, and you do that, not because you're trying to you know, check off like, oh, well, I read my Bible today. I am so righteous. Check. 
You know, no, you check it, you don't, you don't check it off. You do it because it's the thing that's keeping you from falling apart, from keeping you from, from falling into that sin. It's, it's helping you, it's enabling, it's um, giving you strength to help fight that sin. And so this truth makes us closer to Jesus, not more distant to him. And that's why Paul has to kind of go after this here. And he says, yeah, if, if you're a self-righteous person, have your, you have your act together, you're gonna be looking down on people. You're gonna think you're a great person. And people like that, no one wants to be around a self-righteous person. I mean, I've heard people say, I avoid going to church altogether because people there are so stuck up and self-righteous. No one likes to be around that um, because the person is actually doing something profoundly sinful. But you see, when we realize as Christians that we are not righteous, this not only changes our relationship with God profoundly, but it changes our relationship with others because we realize we're a huge train wreck. We're a huge mess. We're in the need of the grace of God. And then what happens from that is we are more gracious and kind and humbler to people who are going through difficulties and struggles in life. We're not like, oh, I would never struggle with that sin because I am so amazing. Just look at how holy I am and pure. You're clearly struggling with this and you haven't matched my perfect perfection of righteousness. You know, no one, that's, you know, that's like a really arrogant person. No one likes that. That's terrible. Instead, we're like, I actually struggle with the same thing. You know, I'm with you on that and uh, I'm praying for you, man. You know, it's more of like a support rather than, oh, I'm so much better than you kind of thing. And I love how John Newton puts it. Whoever is truly humble will not be easily angered. Angered, angry, nor harsh or critical of others. He will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there is a difference, it is grace alone which has made it. He knows that he has the seed of every evil in his own heart, and under all trials and afflictions, he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in, in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. And so it changes our perspective with our neighbors, how we treat our neighbors, but it changes how we answer on that last day of judgment when we are exposed as morally bankrupt, that we have not kept God's perfect standard. It allows us to have a reply to the Lord as to like, why should I, you know, God's like, why should I let you into heaven? You know, you're unrighteous, you're sinful, we're all morally dirty, and we're morally exposed before his pure eyes. It gives us a response, and we point to Christ. We point to Jesus. He is our ticket into eternal life, into heaven. That is how we are saved, is through the finished blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't need a good defense lawyer. Jesus is your lawyer. He's the best defense attorney ever. He's defending you, and he's God. So I'm pretty sure he's going to do a pretty good job at it. So that's what we have to bank on. And so all we can say at the end of our life, when we stand before God, exposed for all the things we have done wrong, all we can say is that I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let's pray.